Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 2023 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. The PCRF, remember, we promote research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. So here with the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in medical education. A big thank you to Limmer Education for sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of science in education. I'm Megan Corey, and I am here with Katie O'Connor and Kim McKenna and Dr. Bill Toon. And today we're going to take a little turn here, this get a little less researchy, somewhat researchy, and dig into some innovative practices in education with a smattering of research in it. And this is a, an article that's entire, uh, entitled uh, Child Maltreatment Education, Utilizing an Escape Room Activity to Engage Learners on a Sensitive Topic. Uh, this is published in an open access journal that I don't know about you guys, but I have never heard of this journal. This is open access. It's called the Journal of Education and Teaching in Emergency Medicine, JET EM, kind of like that. Uh, and it's in January 2023. Um, you can check it out online and we can put the, uh, and I, you can see it actually the the um, the reference up on the uh, the screen, and it, it's a great article and has a ton of detail in it that we'll go into. But thank you all for joining us today. We want to remind you that you can use the chat feature to talk amongst yourselves and to some of the panelists, and you can also uh, type into the Q&A, and we can bring those questions uh, into the presentation as we go. So also remember that if you miss any of these journal clubs, uh, you can always replay past episodes from our very own YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash at PCRF at UCLA. And uh, you can check out these uh, education research journal clubs plus Dr. Remley Crow, Dr. Tony Fernandez in the clinical journal clubs as well. So let's get started uh, looking at this. So first, I want to thank Mike Caduce for picking this. He, Michael Caduce is at UCLA. He sends articles. We talk about research a lot. And this one kind of stood out. I was on the fence whether to use it or not because it's not super researchy, you know, p-values and tables and other things. But it is about an innovative practice uh, in education. So and with a little touch of you know measurement uh, of the effectiveness of it at the end, not really the effectiveness, but the the satisfaction. Really, it's a, more of a feasibility kind of study, but it's founded in a serious problem. And so, using the, uh, an innovative activity like an escape room to engage learners on a sensitive topic like child maltreatment, um, that's kind of part of this. Can we engage learners, deepen learning, but still maintain? Um, you know, the seriousness of the topic itself. So they they talk about some of the incredibly um, 
serious statistics about uh, child maltreatment, over a half a million children in the U.S. being victims of uh, abuse and neglect, um, and the historical struggle that we've had in medicine with identifying early onset um, identification of child maltreatment, uh, you know, citing some of the, the numbers, a third of, of, of um, cases not being recognized even after having a, a previous medical um, experience. And then they move into, you know, kind of the lack of information that we have on the pre-hospital uh, setting and that we're uniquely you know, in a position to identify this being in the actual setting, in the actual home. They do, and Kim, I wanted to uh, bring you in here because they do cite something um, in their, in the introduction about, you know, because they had a lack of information about the, the specifics of pre-hospital identification of child maltreatment, they used kind of a surrogate comparison. They looked at the National EMS Information System Database to evaluate. This is actually they were citing a study that did um, that, that compared, you know, the the document EMS documentation of child maltreatment in patients uh, less than or equal to three years of age, and they compared that to national incidents of child maltreatment and saw this fifteen fold discrepancy. And it dawned on me some people out there may not understand where is this database? What is the National Information you know system? And and where is it? <laughs> sure. Well, all you have to do is Google NIMSIS, and it's the National Uniform uh, it, um, National EMS Information System. And basically, what it does is it provi provides a uniform repository for patient care reporting data to dump into. So there are mandatory fields that have to be gathered, and there are actually forty nine states and territories that participate in and send their data to NEMSIS. There's only Delaware and Idaho, I think are the only two states that don't participate at the present time, uh, last uh, I looked. And um, there's an incredible amount of information in there to be mined. So the idea was to have uniform data so that people could really take a big look at the EMS system and be able to answer questions about what is it that people are actually doing out in the field. And so you can actually request data sets from access to some of their data sets if you're trying to research a particular topic. And um, you know, the what what is it? Something something like almost 44 million records in there. Now, of course, the limitation as in so many things that we do is that uh, a lot of times there's missing data because people don't fully complete the patient care report. And so that this is a little plug <laughs> for trying to teach your entry level folks and in Con Ed to teach folks that they really have to complete the data um, so that we can really understand our system. So, I mean, it was really helpful like during COVID, for example, um, and, you know, a lot of studies have been published with NEMSIS data. A lot of, um, there are some studies that have been published DE&I data about, you know, the difference in treatment between in pain management, for example, in different patient groups. So that's pretty much it. Yeah. And actually I should, I didn't put a slide in here. And, um, you know, if Dave Page was on, he would tell me you didn't put a slide in here on uh, checkoutpcrf.org. If you go to the the website, you can, I'm sorry, it's a uh, prehospitalcare.org. You'll see our website at the end as well. Um, to see that there are uh, there are applications that are going to be opening up and already open as well for some of these summits, the 
There's um, the ESO summits that are next year. There's applications for research summits. And there's another one, I believe, in February. Um, and, and there's applications for them. If you're interested in, in tapping into, a lot of these are based on large-scale you know, databases um, like the Nemesis. You know, Nemesis data can be loaded into different things. ESO is one of them. Image Trend, you know, there are other, and some use their own proprietary, but they're using the same, you know, um, the, the same data points, the same standards. So, so I guess there's surveillance data too. And, and that's a really good point about, you know, empty fields. I don't know, I'm not familiar with the fields that would, that would associate with a, abuse or neglect, whether there's something that, you know, that could identify that. I don't know, Kim, if you're aware of, um, fields that would be associated with that because it could be, you know, could be this 15 part of at least that 15 fold discrepancy could be that there wasn't uh, a field, you know, filled out for that or, you know, that the data collected it doesn't have the integrity or doesn't reflect reality. We don't know. Right. I'm not familiar with that data set, but yeah. one of the one of the common things that is missing is race and ethnicity. Mm. And so, you know, if you were studying, for example, if you were studying abuse and neglect, you know, you'd want to probably look at, is there a difference between uh, groups in terms of abuse and neglect? And if that data is reporting, yeah, right. There's just no way to really understand um, sort of where the problems lie if the data is really not complete. So, yeah, that's a good, good point. And also, I guess when you, when it comes to something like that, is it, uh, where, where does the provider get that data is this data that they're using based on perception or they're getting that data, you know, based on something like a reading, a blood pressure, a pulse, a, you mm -hmm. know, an objective reading or a subjective, you know, and the same with the abuse neglect data. I don't know exactly which fields um, they're using, but you know, that is it based on subjective experiences There's some type of objective data that they're using to determine that. Right. Yeah, I'm not, not familiar sure. with that. Like I said, I'm not familiar with that research. And so I don't really know what, fields or whether they were using some kind of data mining to look at narratives to determine that. So, yeah. And so looking up Nemesis is worthwhile if you're ever thinking about looking at, you know, data points that are coming from your charts or for your, um, what, I always still call them charts, <laughs> but your patient care records, your electronic health records. Um, yeah. EHRs. Um, but if you're looking at data there and it's linked to Nemesis, it's a, it's probably a good idea to go and look at the data dictionary and see how it is defined and, and reported. Right. The registry used it in the ALS practice analysis to try and determine what is it that people are actually doing out there. And one of the discoveries they made was that the number of behavioral calls was in the top five for both adults and for kids. And so as educators, we need to really sort of think about, are we doing enough mm. to educate in the initial and continuing education realms in that area? And I think the answer for most of us was, oh, dang, I really yeah. need to really kind of step it up here. Yeah. And step, and then the question is step what up, right? So that's kind of what, what, the, um, what I liked about this. And that's why we kind of said, you know, this is probably a good turn and, and to look at. And those of you who are out there as we have a lot of participants today, thank you for coming. Um, there, this, I would strongly recommend pulling this article and the appendices. If you're at all interested in running escape rooms or even an, an escape room on a sensitive topic, um, because they, give you down to the item codes that they ordered on Amazon. They give you absolutely everything. They even give you areas of their stuff that you're going to see in a minute 
um, where you plug in your personal, your your local, you know, information, and 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 take theirs out. I mean, it really, I I really appreciated that. So I want to thank the authors out there for doing this. That this is truly something that you could take and and take to the next level. So um, getting back to the problem though that they're trying to address, um, as you can imagine, lack of reporting. If it is you know, even though we were talking about maybe limitations of the data set, I don't think we would doubt that lack of reporting is is a reality uh, for a number of reasons. And so they they identify sort of potential areas that um, that come from previous research uh, that uh, identified that it could be you know minimal continuing education on on child maltreatment, uh, minimal knowledge of the kind of details of of you know, the of abuse, the epidemiology, the, the kind of um, signs and symptoms or signs and and um, details where you might have uh, suspicion for abuse and neglect. Uh, also, knowledge of child development, which I thought was really interesting. You know, what things are normal versus abnormal during child development, maybe bruising patterns and things like that, what a child, where a child might be injured. Um, limited clinical time, of course, uh, is always going to be a concern, fast paced work environment, and you know how to do this in a very short period of time and pay attention to the situation as well. Understanding of how to appropriately interact with families. So that's a communication thing. And then the big one I thought was fear of being wrong. I still think that's a, a big concern. People are, you know, maybe afraid of taking that leap if it's something and making a mistake. Um, so that's, the, those are some of the things that they, that was identified in previous research. So then what they wanted to do was because, um, you know, they, this was a continuing education, by the way, this is not an initial education. Um, they wanted to then apply an educational principle, which is rather than just doing a lecture and giving stat stats and saying, this is you know, what you should be doing, and here's the protocol and the policy. They wanted to use best educational practices, which means deepening the enhance the, the learning experience to enhance retention. And so they decided to use the escape room activity. Um, and that raised an issue. You know, this is a sensitive topic. Can you use something that seems kind of light and gamey? Uh, on such a sensitive topic. So the interesting thing is, is they, they don't, um, this is in a journal, but they don't say a research objective. And then we were talking about this beforehand. This is why I was so on the fence with using this. They don't have a research objective. They have educational objectives and then they call them research methods. So I kind of highlighted the key words in each of their objectives, but um, so the, their objective is at the end of this activity, they want the learner to be able to understand things like the prevalence, local and national, the types of child maltreatment, um, the their local uh, reporting requirements. Remember, this is continuing education. So now they're going to take it down to the practical local reporting requirements. And when do they make base contact? Um, and then the final one is th their objective is to is getting people to collaborate collaborate as a team. So these were their educational objectives. And then the research part of it was just to do that kind of post-program evaluation. I thought they missed a, a kind of a couple of opportunities here in terms of research. One is the pre-test, post-test, you know, the what do they know beforehand and what will they know afterwards? The, the you know, you could follow up with a three-month evaluation. They might be doing that for all we know. They could be doing something long-term like, you know, months from now, how, what's, what's our, 
um, you know, pre-intervention, educational intervention incidents of reporting versus post, you know, that the, you know, other the details related to that. So I think the kind of missed a little bit of an opportunity there. What do you think, Kim? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at the four levels of Kirkpatrick, they measured really the lowest one, yeah. which is learner satisfaction, you know, and even if they'd gone, like you said, to the next step and measured, like, is there a difference in what they know now before what they knew then? And then do they transfer it into the field? But, you know, they, a lot of times that once you get up to level three, it's hard if they're not in your system, maybe you don't have the QI data to be able to monitor that. And, you know, and how do you know, you know, it's just harder and harder to measure that. And then is it actually going to make a difference in terms of the number of children that get, you know, into the mm-hmm. system, it would be almost impossible to measure. But yeah, I think they did miss an opportunity there. But, uh, you know, I think this is, you know, our brains crave novelty. And so you could, you could see how the learners would be super engaged in something like this, because, you yeah. know, I think EMS folks, just by nature, are a little bit competitive, maybe. <laughs> yes. And and then like that interaction, I think we've been so unnatural at making them sit in a dark room with, you know, lots of word slides and the expert at the front telling them how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some people actually, I don't know about you, Katie, uh, in your classroom, but uh, some students still ask for that too. I'll still have students come up to me and, and be like, okay, are we going to go? I'm so used to like marching chapter by chapter and, and having, you know, someone tell us what their experience is rather than engaging in it or having to find it myself. Yeah. My students actually this semester actually asked for that. They're like, Hey, you know, I really, I like it when, cause I ask them what they like and what they don't like and what, what I can keep doing. They're like, well, I really like when you do lectures and we have slides and you're just like telling us the stuff we need to know. But then I asked them too. Like, I think that the thing that's cool about here is um, we did a similar not traditional activity and they're like, you know, actually reflecting on it, I do feel like I liked that and I like to learn that. So part of this I think is great is that you're kind of convincing the learners that they can learn through a different method, which is, you know, it's a low level, but um, if they believe they can learn that way, we do know that they actually do take more out of it. So I did like that part of this. Great point. And Bill, you and I were talking about this right before about how it kind of relates to what you were saying before we started this, which is in especially fire and police and, um, you know, services like that. It's very rigorous, rigid, um, standardized, you know, this is how we do things into this box. And so I'm wondering if that, you know, that kind of relates. I I was going to comment that I think that you're staring at me when you talk about the guy that likes to stand at the front of the classroom as the expert. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, you think about how many, how often, you know, that happens, but I think it's interesting that they're asking that some students are asking for it. And I think maybe that's a reflection of coming from these services. Well, but it's reinforced with them when they go to conferences, almost everything, yes. that, almost everything that we talk about, even when you go to a lecture on, here's how you should do a flipped classroom. How do they do it with them? They stand up at the front with their slides and they yes. flip classroom. So it, it just, um, we do everything wrong, even in trying to get other people aware of what's, what's happening. That's very true. Katie and I did something. We were trying to do more workshoppy things. It's not easy at a conference because people do give you that impression. Look, I want to sit in the back or stand in the back and pop out and grab coffee and come back in and 
and I want to network with my people. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting, um, yeah, I think that's so true. So these, these are the uh, educational objectives. And then they had these research methods, which basically uh, was a, a post um, assessment or a post activity assessment. They had questions that assess the learner's perception of the importance and of the applicability of the content, which I thought was good. It wasn't just, did you like it? Did you have fun? It was really directed toward what things did you think were the most important uh, in this and um, and most applicable, which I don't think you can necessarily predict, especially these are physicians that were running this. It's a collaborative, it looks like, between Orange County and, and University of Pittsburgh. And so it was a little like a kind of looks like physician driven from at least from the outside um, you know, without having an author. I'm kind of jumping to assumptions here, but uh, the so it's it, it, what did what was important in the actual content was what they were asking. Then they did ask about the escape room format just to make sure that it wasn't going to come up as, you know, there's a serious topic and you treated it like it was a game. Um, and they wanted to see if that was significant and helpful to their practice. And then of course, now you could take the next step. So the intervention was, and this I thought was interesting. If you, I don't know if you guys looked at the appendix, but the appendix, um, and I don't know if, uh, if, if you guys can watch the chat too, there's a few people in the chat that I can't see. Um, the, in the appendix, they have like, <laughs> I'm telling you everything you need. It's uh, to, to see what they did and how you could adapt it to if you wanted to try this. Um, but they did a 15 minute, they said it was a 15 minute PowerPoint presentation to launch it off like a pre-briefing with, uh, you know, background information and others. I looked at that. There's 35 slides in that. Um, and so I, I, I it's a, uh, I looked at that and thought 15 minutes, could I hand somebody 35 slides like that and tell them you have 15 minutes to do this, um, this presentation. And this is the minimal information that we're to provide. It's a pre-briefing and then go into the escape room. So when I saw that, I thought, gosh, you know, you'd really have to give somebody a time limit and key points on that. And then the escape room was the activities. There were five small group activities. The groups were in small groups, six students, there was an instructor in each room um, for the activity. So they had them in five, it looks like five separate rooms um, that they would go to, uh, or maybe they were in one room and they had five activities. I can't quite figure that out, but there was one instructor for six students. That's important too, because that's a, you know, is that what has to happen? Is six ideal? You know, that's that whole um, instructor ratio resources kind of question as well. And then there was a 10 minute debrief after that. So, um, which I like, again, these pre-brief, the activity where they engage and they engage with each other. The instructor I think was there to be the quote unquote base contact if they needed assistance. That's the way I understood it. Um, and then the debrief was 10 minutes. And if you've ever done, I've actually never done an escape room. You can do them for social activities too, but I've never done them. Have, have Has any of you been part of an escape room. And if I had to guess, I would say Katie would be the one. <laughs> yeah, actually I did an escape room for EMS at a conference. So that was mine. I haven't done one for funsies yet. And then I, well, I did one on um like a escape room, similar to an educational escape room where it's not actually an escape room, but you're like in a room and you have to unlock the locks. So there's no room to escape from. It's just like solve a puzzle kind of thing. Yeah. Like this one was, this yeah. was solve the puzzles kind of thing. Bill, don't tell you know, me you've of course, done escape Of rooms. course I've been to an escape room. I have a daughter, you know. The you senior center? Yeah. 
the local senior center in Arizona. <laughs> no, they it, it's a the escape rooms can be again, it's up to how engaged the, the people are really makes a big difference, you know. So but I've had fun. I like them. I was even thinking, I wonder if you could go to a local escape room and set up something in one of their venues since they're almost, you know, more ideal and you bring in a small team and mm. maybe a, a fire engine and an ambulance, maybe, you know, five to eight people that would be and then, you know, put them through the escape room and see what it was like. It would be just interesting in a different, even a different environment because some of those places really go to setting up the room, you know, yeah. so it really has a lot of the visual stimulation that you may not be able to create within your classroom. So, yeah. And you're in, in the true spirit of the escape room, you're locked into a room and you have to solve a series of puzzles in order to get out. And it involves teamwork. So um, in, in this, this was more of a series of puzzles within a room. Um, I don't know if that meant, uh, you know, they needed you know, they, they couldn't get out of the room until they finished the activities. You know, they didn't really uh, go into that. Um, but I don't know if you were able to look at any of the activities themselves, but the, uh, you know, again, the 15 minute PowerPoint presentation uh, was the only thing I had questions about. There was a 35 slide, you know, set that was in there. And, and I, I kind of questioned, well, how could you really do that in 35, um, you know, in 15 minutes? So uh, Kim, have you done escape rooms? No, I have not. But my, I was just thinking as we were talking, wouldn't it be a fun thing to do to at the beginning of the year for team building? And yeah. um, you could do it around your class policies and procedures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, a, that's a really good one. You know, that's to make sure one. that they were really diving deeply into them rather than just yeah. sort of over them one by one. I've done a scavenger hunt. This year I did a scavenger hunt where they they worked in teams. They had to go to different places. They had to look up things in the library, take a selfie with a librarian, you know, yeah. do all these things. They had to create a little picture portfolio, picture history, pictorial history on on the learning management system. And that was a lot of fun. So scavenger hunt's another one that's a really good, you mm -hmm. know, uh, way of getting people to physically, especially if they fit, you want them to physically find stuff. Um, like where's the, you know, disabled students program and where's the counseling area and that kind of thing. You physically send them around um, rather than giving them a list of rooms. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, this is the, the the process they did. And you can see they, they put images uh, within the, the document. So you can see they're working through a puzzle uh, on one of them. They're using UV light to read invisible ink on another one. And again, they, they have um, the list of all of their materials that then where they got them and even alternatives, if you couldn't afford certain things, they said, oh, in the, you know, if you can't, we got these on Amazon, but you could actually make these and you could do it out of this or as an alternative. So it really is a great little primer on how to do this specific activity. And I, I could see that you could adjust to other topic areas as well. But again, not deviating from the seriousness of the of this topic. Um, I think it was a, a great one for, um, you know, multiple reasons and we're going to see those so uh, what i did was put a slide for each of the puzzles that they had and each one was a puzzle you had to unlock 
a box that it ha had all the puzzles in it. So they had locked boxes and it was a series of them and they had to go through five different activities. But the thing I really liked and, and as an educator, and I immediately thought of you guys, uh, all of our educators, Bill, Kim, Kat, um, Katie, the um, link from the activity to the objective really being mindful about saying these are our objectives for this educational in a you know activity or, or intervention basically we want we know the problem we know the problem that we're trying to address we're going to make objectives based upon each of those areas that i listed that they pulled from the literature as an, a potential issue with reporting in the field so they pulled from the research said these have been problems that have been identified in a previous study or potential issues. We're going to make objectives based upon those. Maybe they don't understand, you know, the prevalence or uh, of, and, and maybe the, um, you know, that the signs and symptoms, um, you know, all of these things, maybe there isn't, you know, a, a enough of um, knowledge uh, working together on, on something like this. And they drew them right to the activity, right to the objective. So what did you guys think about that? Well, I, I loved it because I think sometimes people do fun activities just for fun. But if you think about the amount of time that we have in the classroom, they have to be linked to something important. So to me, that was really an important thing that they did. Yeah. And I think it made me think too, Katie, of how often we talk about simulation and how now, how often simulation is going to be used um, it, it always has been sort of informally in many places, formally in others, but the really, the real, you know, anchor is the objective of the simulation or objectives, just like the anchor of a course is the learning outcomes, the, the intended student learning outcomes. Um, the anchor of, of any educational activity is the objective. And in the past, it's been sort of like, oh, just, you know, write a list of objectives and in the content and everything else. But the real question is, how are we circling back those evaluations and assessments back to that objective and, and whether or not it's actually measuring? I mean, that is sort of a research, um, that's the educator researcher crossover is, am I actually is my measure of of evaluating of the student linked to their ability to meet that objective? And I really appreciated about uh, that um, part of this research is or this uh, innovation. So here's just some examples. I, I put examples of each of the puzzles. So there's a puzzle. Um, a kid is a suspected child abuse report form. This activity links to the objectives three and five, which are knowing the EMS agency uh, reporting requirements and collaborate effectively as a team is under everyone because this is an escape room activity. So the other thing that I, I think of is you have a group of six, is, is everyone engaged? Um, and maybe that's the point of having either recording or one person in the room or something like that. Just ensuring that everyone is busy, everyone's engaged and they're working together. Um, I know what that's like if you guys, and, and again, I'd like to, you know, pull in the panelists on this one, your experience with group work, um, one person's absent or one person's there, but maybe less engaged than the others and how you work with that. Katie? 
Yeah, I think that this is um like a key thing with escape rooms. The amount of time that it takes to build them, I think we probably don't realize how much thought and time went into this, but just the, um, like the puzzle and having something for everyone to do doing the puzzles versus like one of the things that you could become a challenge with how you set this up is they divide and conquer. So if you really want, like you're, they did, I love that they designed each puzzle to a learning objective, but then also structured it in a way that everyone had to be engaged in each learning objective, which does mean that you have small groups, which means that you need more facilitators. And if you're thinking of like a fire-based system, that probably means more overtime or more time off the rig. So um, great, great activity. But if you really structure it to hit these objectives then you it's quite difficult right like yeah. it's not just oh we came up with all these things that they could do or these games it's they have to do them in this order so that they can't divide and conquer and you know one person writes this part of the paper and they really know all about that and then the other person writes this and they couldn't answer a single question about the background or introduction right yeah yeah and that's it's always the challenge with group work and i think that's where we keep coming up with this sort of six to one ratio with the, you know the little bit of research behind that, but um, you know not necessarily a lot. And then you know, like you said, numbers of facilitators is a challenge, and that facilitator can't just be anybody. That the person has to be trained. You can see that they actually have to have, and they talk a little bit about that. They also mentioned that it they accounted for something like thirty to forty five minutes of preparation time before coming in, I would say that's at least um, 30 to 45 minutes of preparation of the escape rooms. And I'm, I'm sure that means after they've already assembled the boxes and, you know, or assembled some of the things, maybe double checking, maybe going through a pre-brief with the, the facilitators, you know, whatever that is. But um, yeah, if you all out there have uh, experience, you know, keep sharing them in the chat room, um, the panelist server can read that and bring it in. Um, any ideas, even if you have ideas, you know, it would be a great idea. Let's do, a, you know, an escape room on, um, you know, pop those into the chat and we can um, bring them in. So, and, and especially if you've done something, we don't do enough. Uh, and I know we have forums for this. We have, or is it Fora? <laughs> we have um, settings uh, in which we can share like the NEMSI conference and, um, and, you know, reading uh, some of the journals like this, but um, it, it would be nice to to be able to share across networks again, doing the same thing at the same time and and then, you know, collaborating and seeing if it works, doing some, you know, effectiveness uh, outcome uh, research and education. Kim? I was just going to say, I think the that the authors of this paper have given us all a great gift because you pointed this out, like they have done so much of this prep work. It would still take, you know, several hours for you to take it and customize it to your own system. But the other thing that that you can do then is save it and then be able to use it in the future, especially if you're doing initial education, typically you know, you have boxes full of stuff and then you can just go and kind of pull things out. So I, I think that while these activities can take a long time to develop, if they're very successful in achieving the objectives, then the next time you use them, you don't have to invest that much time, which is really awesome. Yeah. And I think we see that to a degree, probably Katie, you could say you do that with simulation. You can, you know, you have these, this is my OB box, you know, the one with the, the, 
fake abdomen that we can attach under somebody and a, you know, a baby and whatever. But this is my homeless shelter box, you know, <laughs> that has a sleeping bag and a or or homeless encampment or something like that. Yeah. Bill? I was gonna say the other thing about this, I think this is a good example of maybe how you want to set work up for the someone who follows you on. So this allows for a lot of continuity in teaching. You know, if you actually have this level of detail, this is where I ordered this from, this is where I ordered that from. And I think that we, I know I certainly was guilty that I came up with a lot of great ideas, but I failed to write them down or have them designed so someone else could pick it up. I like the fact that they went to the degree of this is where you find this on Amazon, you know, and I think that level of detail has great value, particularly if you're, uh, have instructor turnover or whatever it might be. So there's a way for there to be some consistency in this teaching over time. Yeah. And documentation of it. Katie. I was just thinking about like, this is also a great way to get consistent um, engagement and teaching on specific things like documentation, right? So we could do a sim on child abuse and cover the like, identifying all the signs and symptoms and things like that. But potentially the area of documentation is at the end and we kind of skirt over it or it's not really engaged. And the other issue is that sometimes when you're doing um, topics like this, it can really engage learners in an emotional way that prevents them from learning. So while we were initially talking about how this could be, oh, you know, it seems like game and we're gamifying something that's a really serious topic. In a way, we're also potentially engaging people in a way that they can do this in with psychological safety. So it's like solving a game around statistics versus them just like hearing statistics in a classroom that's a higher level, but it may be easier to engage with the statistics than it is to engage with an actual like simulation of child abuse. Mm -hmm. um, so you can still hit some objectives and engage people who maybe would be overwhelmed in other settings. And like we mentioned, we have limited time. So I know we did a, a simulation on child abuse, and one of the problems was that one of the learners just completely went into dad cop mode. He happened to also be a police officer, but wasn't engaged in any of the medical or EMS sections of it because his brain just went to like protect this child at all costs, get them away from the parents. And then yeah. like we lost half of the objectives. So I think this yeah. is a unique way to uh, get something that could really trigger people and break it down into small sections where their brain is being changed, right? Like, so we're doing a cipher task and then we're doing a fine task and we're doing like a Play-Doh task. So it really helps keep them from getting too emotionally activated potentially. Yeah. Also the small group. And I think I like what you're saying too, about the the time spent uh, in a small group. They, they can also start their own little conversation, especially if they have prior experience of, of sharing prior experience. Um, you know, rather than in a simulation, even simulation sometimes tends to be one unidirectional, right? That even if you're not in the room and you're facilitating, it's still, we've constructed this for you um, rather than students constructing, even though we've constructed this for you too, um, students in groups like that can construct their own learning experiences as well and bring in their own experiences. Again, a reason why I like clinicals and and field experience time done during the didactic and and lab sessions so that students can come back and share with each other rather than being sent off on their own 
um, you know, at the, at the end of something um, and, and gaining all this experience that they could be, that could mean more if they were exchanging that uh, information with their classmates. So this is puzzle two. Again, that's, this is about the stats and hidden answers. And this is the invisible ink one. So there's a little bit of fun because they're placed around the room. They have to find these stats that, and again, this is a meeting objectives one and five, five is the teamwork one. It's going to be in every single one, but one is the national and local prevalence of child maltreatment. So they have these stats going around the room to find um, and fill in. Um, and again, that will uh, unlock the next thing, um, which is their local um, policy on abuse reporting guidelines. So they have all these little, you know, clues that they have to find um, within their own local policies. Uh, and it's part of this puzzle that they're putting together, um, which again, uh, you know, unlocks another one. And this is the one that has the little coder, the decoder wheel. And you handle these cases um, that are associated with multiple choice questions. Answering the questions um, will get you to a word by using a decoder. And the decoder will get you to uh, the color of Play-Doh that you get to in the last uh, exercise. Um, so all of these things, and this is like uh, pretty dense. I mean, this is six cases. You're, you're, they're, they're able to look at six cases here. They've seen already an abuse report, a focus on the report in the second exercise or the first exercise. And then, you know, they've worked together to find some statistics and um, and now they're down to these, these cases. Uh, and then they use those to answer questions and then decode. Um, and when they decode, they find a color and that's where the color of the Play-Doh in which there is a key and that's their final puzzle um, solved. And when they open that, they get a puzzle that they put together and it can have any message on it. Um, and their message that they chose for theirs was um, a reminder to make base contact. So, uh, and, and they say that in there, your final message can be, you know, a positive one. It can be uh, congratulations, you've, you know, solved the puzzle or whatever. And then after this activity, and again, you know, it big returns when I think about that, that's a lot of learning in a short period of time in small groups. And even though you have, you know, one facilitator for every six students, um, you know, the, the facilitator, the training level of the facilitator is, is a, a question. Also, can you just record a room? Um, you know, it, is recording okay? Or do they need that? You know, how often do they need the facilitator to begin with? Um, you know, there, there's other ways of handling that resource question or potentially at least handling the resource question. When it came to the kind of researchy part of this, um, their results, actually, they had, they trained 130 EMTs and paramedics. So it was both levels, which I like, and it was 12 sessions. Um, the learners were asked to rate using that scale of, you know, should improve, satisfactory, average, excellent. So it's weighted toward the positive. You have three things that say you're either okay or better than okay, um, I guess. Satisfa satisfactory and average to me seemed a little um, close. I don't know uh, if you guys, what you thought, of, if, you, if that stood out to you at all about the scale that that was used. Yeah, I thought that was a little bit problematic because it doesn't really give them any space to say that like, well, it was okay, but I didn't like it or because I mean, satisfactory to me seems like, oh, yeah, that was good. That's fine. 
And then average yeah. is also like, yeah, it seemed average. It was good. It was fine. So, <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they had, you know, any questions about that. Cause it wasn't like a, you know, agree, strongly agree, disagree, strongly disagree, kind of where you have sort of equivalence on each end. It was one should improve and the rest are okay or great. And two of them, two and three satisfactory and average. I'm not even sure I understand the difference between them. So yeah, and it also doesn't seem like they asked them like, it's like, oh, this it, information is impertinent, important. One of those are important, impertinent. Um, one of the questions you see a lot is, will you do something with this? Or like, will this change yes. my practice? So I think that there's like some pretty good scales and pretty good questions that we've seen in a lot of other research that we could have probably applied here and it would have already been validated as far as scales. Yeah. I'm really glad that they put themselves out there and published this. And, and I'm really glad that Jet EM is out there so that people can put out their methodology. Um, but I do want to, you know, just say that I think that the, this part of it, this measurement part of it could have been um, more linked to the actual objectives. We have one, we have three questions basically that they had to rate. Um, and one was information presented was important and pertinent. Forum provided good information and communication, and which is again, a positively worded. Both of these were positively worded. And same with the question, program met stated objectives. Um, when you measure learning outcomes, one of the tools that's really kind of cool is to just put the learning outcomes there. By the end of this you know, program, um, the student should be able to, and then you have the, the learning outcomes. And then you ask the student to say that they agree, disagree, strongly disagree, strongly agree, and then have text below it to say why they put the answer that they did if, you know, if they're, they're willing to fill that out. And that's much more powerful. It, you kind of put it there as less kind of biased approach. And you're actually putting each objective there and asking the student if they met it. And then if your puzzles were designed to meet an objective, now how do you measure the effectiveness of that that one specific activity too, to meet that objective. So this was sort of more of a global, you know, how did you like it? Um, and of course, not, not surprisingly, 95% of them rated excellent on all three of the questions. And then they had, you know, nobody went below satisfactory. They had less than 1% satisfactory, less than 1%, um, you know, average. So, and again, they did percentage. I'd, I'd like to see ends, you know, how many, and then they had um, a, a free text comment, which I appreciate uh, the comment fields. Um, and they just summarize that as uh, the, the most important. And actually, I thought this was pretty important that in the most of the uh, free uh, text comments focused on recognizing the signs of abuse was the most significant piece of information they got from it. So to me, that says recognizing signs of abuse was an area they did not feel good at before this and after this. And I'm not sure which activity that would have been in. Um, maybe the case study one. I'm not sure you guys, but that's that's the one that, that stood out uh, to me is like maybe it was the, you know, wh what would they say about each one and what they got out of it? I thought all of them were pretty good, but, you know, which activity? So for me, it was actually interesting because one of the things that I, when I was reading through this, it seemed like the stuff they were starting at was we don't, we underreport in EMS. 
And then so there was a lot of like, okay, we're going to have activities around documentation. But at the end, the thing that people are commenting on were recognizing signs of abuse. And so I almost wonder if we didn't actually have an intervention that targeted the problem, because I think that for at least in my experience, this is one person like Katie N of one. Um, a lot of times the providers think that they don't have to report it because they've told the nurse or that they've documented it this way mm. and that's all they need to do. And I know in a lot of states that because we have underreporting and because kids slip through the cracks that now providers are mandated reporters. So like I remember when I started in Virginia, we weren't mandated reporters because they assumed the hospital would do it. And so we had this mm. interventional training saying, okay, now you have to actually report as well. But Whenever you get something in CE training, I think that it doesn't stick as well as when it's like part of foundational practice. So to me, it seems like this could potentially still be an issue where we didn't necessarily fix the underreporting, but maybe we caught more. Um, I yeah. just don't know if it's going to translate well to documentation. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if they have a next step. Bill? Yeah, I think that touch. Katie sort of touched there at the end uh, by saying, I, I think that we have to find... I believe we should look for ways to tie what we do in the classroom to the performance in the field, at least as it relates to continuing education. I really, you know, if we put a lot of effort into, you know, improving our documentation and reporting of child malpractice, we need to then have a way to um, see if we're really impacting and causing a change. You know, foundational or initial education it's a different approach, but I definitely think in continuing education, we have to, I believe it's important to tie what goes on in the classroom to performance in the field. Yeah, I think that kind of gets to something Kim was saying earlier, though, too, which is um, if one of the the problems is reporting what none of these activities use their EHR, I don't believe it looked like the child, they use the separate report of the of the abuse child abuse report form, which means that they would have already had to have suspected in order to complete that form. Um, so I'm, I'm curious whether, you know, the getting at what you're saying, Bill, using what they use in the field, whatever your EHR is in the field, um, using that in an activity instead of the special report, because the special report, again, assumes you've already said this is uh, an abuse or neglect case. Yeah, I agree with that. The other thing that I think that's that that ties back in is just how important I really think it is to um, find a way to make sure the e the electronic patient record report has those fields and people know when to use those fields. Mm -hmm. Because I still think these these. I, again, I think I agree with the greater population. I find the EHR just seems to take so much longer to complete. Yeah. Um, but yet so much of it is, as you look at this field and says, what do they really want here? What do they exactly? <laughs> and that becomes really difficult because then there, and I, I know there's data dictionaries, but I always felt that what you ought to do is be able to float your cursor over the box and there's a little pop-up window that says, this is what belongs here, you know, versus them guessing. So I, I think, think that even the data in the EHR is questionable because it's left up to, I don't know, I think I should fill this out. That's a really great idea, or at least have an optional, an option to 
uncover, to open the eyeball on what does this field mean? Uh, I don't know if people already have that anywhere, but uh, if you do, you know, pop that one into the chat and let us know. But the, yeah, if you uh, are able to fill out a field and then say, what the, what what do they want here? And then open the little eyeball in the corner, like you can in, you know, Excel, open the little document, you know, square in the corner that says, this is what we want, or the red triangle, whatever it is, that'll tell you this is what this field actually means. Um, that, that would be a, a really good one um, to put in there. Uh, and, and I think too, where, where does it belong? I mean, if we start digging through, um, I would have loved to have known too, even after this, what are your questions still? What questions do you still have? How comfortable do you feel? Like you said, someone said earlier, actually taking this to practice, reporting on and filling out a report, identifying and completing a report. So uh, I can't see the chat. I don't know if you guys can see the chat, if there's anything um, that's going to be coming into uh, the conversation here. But yeah, Annie asked um, when we were thinking about like other questions they could have potentially asked was if they would recommend it to someone else. Mm. Um, like, was it fun or was it just adequate? So I think like sometimes it's like, oh, it's average. But did you enjoy it? Um, that, you know, we didn't really get that right there, like enjoyment. So I think that could have been yeah. asked too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, it's, it's a continuing education. So it'd be important to know whether or not there's some degree of, um, you know, positive feedback actually. And also if you really want to get it, whether or not anybody felt uncomfortable at any point in time, a specific question about that, was there anything in here that was inappropriate that you thought might've been, you know, inappropriate or, um, I mean, if you, sometimes I know if you lead people with questions, they're going to answer them a certain way. But uh, if you really want to get at it too, you got to um, directly ask as well. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know, Megan, if you were able to see the debrief PowerPoint, you know, in the paper, it's just like links to PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't actually look up the debrief one, but that to me, it would be interesting there to see too, if they had linked it to any of their um outcomes or cases that are in their own department to me that always seems to get, get people more engaged when it's not just like a, this is a nebulous information about child abuse but hey here's a case that like this department you know our department ran here's how it worked out like good bad medium um but in our ce training that always was really powerful when we could link it to a local event i believe the pre-brief may have had it bill yeah, I, Katie, I agree with that 100%. What I always tried to do is before I gave a topic is uh, it, it could be as mundane as abdominal pain. Well, how many abdominal pain cases did we run over the last 12 month period of time? Mm -hmm. You know, I like to, I always like to try to pull in what was really happening in our practice to make it relevant. And of course, the most ideal thing is to pick those really good cases up and, and build your scenarios around those. And, um, I, I just didn't, I think that's a great way to approach stuff, at least on the continuing medical education side of things. And this was driven by, I think, like four nurses and a doctor at the children's hospital. So I would love to have seen like maybe something with like spectrum of care there just to, because um, there's a really interesting study around if uh, EMS reports are written by or read by healthcare providers and in 
overwhelming amount of EMS providers said that they did not believe that their reports were ever written or uh, uh, read by anyone. And then when they looked through the whole spectrum of care, they, EMS reports were actually read by the ER, by the inpatient, even at the ICU level, like weeks later. And they had comments back. And I think that like when I read that, I was like, oh, wow, people actually read what I write. That's crazy. I should do a better job. Um, but it would have been great to see some of that since you had so much like children's hospital folks involved in this. Yeah, I was just, Katie, I was just going to add to that. We had, we had a physician we worked with regularly and he says, and this had to deal with when the report was left. He said, if you don't leave the report, I never want to see it. And his thought was, is if you've put something in there critical and I didn't have it when I was assessing this patient and I find it out 24 hours later, it could have totally changed his care that he provided. And he felt that if they didn't leave it at the time, I didn't want to see it at all. Yeah. I think one of one of the areas that this training didn't address that would have been good to address in some way was that fear that they're wrong. You know, people yeah. don't want to report. I think that's really in my mind, in just thinking back on on the systems I've worked in, that really was the biggest barrier for a lot of people was I'm afraid I'm going to be wrong and they're going to take somebody's children away. And, and, you know, kind of understanding, explaining to them that you, just because you report it, they don't take the children away, but, you know, kind of making sure that they understand what happens after the report, I think is really a critical piece that somehow if they could have linked that in, I think it would have been more powerful because one of the other things that they didn't really, uh, I don't feel like was answered at the end is, are they actually going to report more often? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is that barrier removed so that they'll feel like they can report more confident to report, I guess. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, so any other final thoughts? We're getting close to the top of the hour, a couple minutes. The only thought that I would have is that um, this is great. And I love uh, escape rooms. I think it's a wonderful intervention and in training, but just like simulation, I think we need to make sure that we were, uh, are thoughtful about adding in this activity as the, um, writers were, because we have so many different tools in our educational toolbox. We need to pick the one that matches the learning objectives and the learning outcomes. Yes. And I think sometimes we just pick the shiniest thing. So don't let this become another shiny thing, but just like add it in so that it's used at the right time. And you really get really good results with it. Yeah. And add to the literature, add to the conversation we're having. I, I think just, I think I would listen to it again. And, and if I've, I've really thought about doing this, we have um, this topic in the spring, uh, doing something like this around uh, child maltreatment, but uh, measuring some of the differences that we're talking about. The, the, I would teach initial education though. How would you adopt it to initial education as opposed to continuing education? Um, so, and check this out, go to the article, go to, it's an open access article. Um, and it's again, got, yeah, there's a lot of content that's actually in the body of the actual article. And then there's links uh, on the website from uh, the, the link to the article to their appendices. And there are all of it, the slideshows that they show used for pre-briefing and debriefing. Uh, all of the tools are in there. So um, check it out. And um I want to thank the panelists. And is there any final comments from anybody else? Bill, Kim? Well, I want to thank the panelists for joining us. And Bill, did you have anything? 
No, just thanks. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to the researchers for publishing this uh, ed educational innovation. Thanks to you for joining us. We are going to be a week earlier uh, in November. So we're not on the fourth Friday because the fourth Friday is your time off if you're an educator and you need your time off. So um, we're going to be on Friday, November 17th at 10 a.m. Central Noon Pacific, as usual. We're going to be looking at inter-rater agreement between student and teacher assessments of endotracheal intubation skills in a self-directed simulation learning environment. This is a follow-up from one that we looked at a while ago on the Airway Hybrid Lab. Um, and this is a follow-up on you know, the effectiveness of this, this self-directed simulation learning environment that they used and the inter-rater agreement between student and teacher assessment. So that's going to be pretty cool. Join us. And then the next one uh, in the clinical realm is the same week. Sorry, we just had to move ours a little early because of that uh, time off. But there is another one that week if you want some real dose of research. That's on Monday, November 13th. Again, 10 a.m. Central Noon Pacific with Dr. Remley Crow and Dr. Tony Fernandez. Remember, you can join us live each month by registering at prehospitalcare.org. You can also check out those links to apply for an upcoming research summit. And our archive journal clubs can be found on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA. Thank you, Limmer, for sponsoring us. And thank you all for joining us. See you next time. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF journal club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.